I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. Welcome to part two of my interview with Alex Donier, Chief Investment Officer of the $225 billion New York City Pension Funds. In this episode, Alex shares with us the advantages and challenges of investing on behalf of the fourth largest pension fund in the world. He provides his perspective on opportunities in hedge funds. He also describes New York City Pension Fund's commitment to co-investment opportunities. And in this episode, listen to what Scott Pittman, Chief Investment Officer of Mount Sinai, asks Alex in our CIO to CIO question. I hope you enjoy. I would now like to dive further into your role as CIO of the New York City Pension Funds. You have a quite challenging role as you do not just oversee one pension fund, but five, and all have different asset allocations and different consultants that work with each respective fund. The net returns for fiscal year 2020 have varied from 3.6% to 5.7%. I'm curious, what's the history of this setup and what were the goals of it? What works well? What are the challenges? Well, first and foremost, I will say, just to give a little bit of an update that, you know, we, we, we've had some recent strong performance when you roll some of those performance figures one quarter further. We just had, um, Betty, our, our last board meeting um, last week where we presented um, results through September. And if you look at just the one-year trailing numbers for September, our, our boards returned anywhere from 9 to 11%. So despite what we're seeing in what I call the real economy, certainly the markets have recovered strongly and we're at all time highs, you know, as a as a as a plan that's 50 percent, five zero percent, give or take public equities. That matters because we're, we're largely indexed, particularly in, in U.S. equities. So, yes, we took quite the hit in Q1 but certainly have benefited as markets have recovered. Um, so we're excited about that. I will say, first and foremost, when I think about the five plans, what certainly works is the power of leverage, right? Because think about it. Throughout this conversation, I was, I've been speaking to you about the New York City pension funds, and I mentioned $225 billion, right? That is collectively, you know, that not one of our pension funds is that. I, I think our largest which is teachers is 70 plus billion, uh, which in and of itself is large, but it's not 225 billion. So certainly there is leverage in the fact that collectively, and we advise the boards collectively, are 225 billion. And together, it makes us the fourth largest pension plan in the world. Now, I want to be careful um, and, and just make sure I'm clear on this, that while we do leverage the power of the five, we absolutely are five separate boards with five, you know, different, sorry, five different pension funds with five separate boards with five different asset allocations, as you've mentioned. So there are different considerations uh, that have to be made for each board. But where there's commonality, and frankly, there is a lot of commonality. Uh, most of our investment recommendations do, I would say, three quarters of the time, if not 80% of the time, fit all five systems. There's a lot of power in that because it means, particularly for a pension fund, as I mentioned, that's 100 percent externally managed, that at this size, what we get is access. 
You know, we have access to every manager in the world, you know, want to um, have a relationship with New York City and wants an allocation from New York City that affords us a sneak peek at interesting and differentiated strategies. It allows us the ability to structure unique partnerships um, and unique structures, just given our size and the dollars that we that we allocate. And ultimately, which is critical for us at our size, we're able to deliver favorable terms to our beneficiaries. You know, so fees are a, are a big focus, um, um, as you can imagine, and we're always looking to drive down fees. And the power of $225 billion helps us to achieve that. Now, what are some of the challenges? Again, it's five separate five separate boards. You know, I'll give you a little story. When I started at New York City, um, Betty, we used to have five board meetings a month because they all met separately. I mean, we spent as an investment team so much of our time in board meetings that frankly was a slightly, it was inefficient because, you know, it, it took time away from the job of being an investor um, and, and doing that work on, on behalf of your pension funds where five days out of the month, you know, you're sitting in, in a board meeting. So, that's one of the great accomplishments of Comptroller Stringer, one of his reform points. We now have a common, what we call a common investment meeting. So we now meet once a month um, and all boards meet together and we present to them collectively. And if you know there are, there are agenda items that only apply to some, then we'll have separate breakouts. But it's one meeting a month. But after the meeting is over, they all caucus individually. So we're scurrying around, you know, to different rooms, answering questions or now on Zoom, going from room to room. So that has its own challenges. But having five boards and also that means that we have over 50 trustees. And the last point is that we don't have delegated authority. So unlike some of the other plans you may be familiar with that have some level of delegated authority, we need affirmative approval for everything. Everything that we do has to receive, um, a, has to go to a vote from our trustees. So I think that creates obviously some challenges that we need to navigate through, but ultimately we get it done. And, and ultimately I, I would say it, it works um, even though you know, frankly, you know, some, some, some plans, as you know, are either sole trustees and, and, or have delegated authority, you know, for a large portion of, of their investment plans or large amounts. Would that be easier? Of course. <laughs> I'm not going to suggest otherwise. Like everything else, you, you find a way to make it work. Thank you for that. 2020 has been an unprecedented year on multiple fronts. I would love to get your global perspective on the performance of various asset classes and where you see opportunities. First, hedge funds. Hedge funds have generally fallen out of favor with many investors, and some of the New York City pensions do not have any exposure to hedge funds. What are your thoughts on opportunities in this asset class? Sure. So that's interesting. You know, certainly hedge funds have had a tough time, Betty, over the last seven or 10 years, you know, particularly with public pension plans. Um, you know, I, I would certainly highlight that. And it's primarily, as we know, an issue with the industry with regards to lack of transparency, high fees. And in this time frame um, of, of heavy kind of look into this asset class, 
or this structure, I, I should say, you know, has been um, returns. You know, returns have been an issue as, as well. So I kind of get that. And we've experienced that because, as you've mentioned, only two out of the five New York City pension funds have allocations to hedge funds, um, where before um, we certainly had, had others. So right now, only our police pension plan and our fire pension plan have current allocation to hedge funds. Now, we've been a little lucky, and I'll say that a little bit um, because the lucky part comes, I think, a little bit with timing. Um, but the part that's not lucky is that we have a really strong and capable and experienced hedge fund team um, coupled with, with a strong consultant. And what that has meant for our police and fire boards is that the hedge fund portfolio has actually performed well. I mean, if you look at 2020 in particular, it has been nothing short of a blockbuster outstanding year in hedge funds. And certainly our managers have had the opportunity and have taken advantage, frankly, of the opportunity of the volatility in the markets in 2020 to outperform. So when you look at that portfolio, it is absolutely crushing it. But to give better context, you know, our, 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 um, hedge fund investments date back to the middle of 2011, um, mid, mid late 2011. And if you look at our, the returns of our hedge fund portfolio since inception, they've also beaten their benchmark. So from a performance perspective, we have a strong performing portfolio. And the other thing I would mention is that our, our portfolio manager in hedge funds, um, Neil Messing, has done a great job in constructing not only a high performing portfolio, but one that has been thoughtful about fees. So we, we've made some major strides, particularly, particularly in the last three plus years, in buying down a lot of our fees um, through really interesting partnerships um, that have worked out. So we've addressed, um, to a certain extent, because we continue to work on it, but we, 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 could, we have addressed and continue to address that pain point that certainly our boards as well had with, with hedge funds. So it's, 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 it's worked for the boards um, that have retained their allocation to, to hedge funds in New York City. Well, that's good to hear. On the other hand, investors seem to continue to increase their allocation to private equity. What are your general thoughts on opportunities here? Where do you see valuations going? How has COVID-19 impacted valuations? So interesting question, Betty, because I would think there's a, there's a lot of similarities between hedge funds and PE. And that's primarily from the lens of the scrutiny that investors, particularly public plan investors and boards, have had of the private equity industry. I mean, again, I began in this role, or at least at New York City, I should say, in 2012. So shortly after the hedge fund um, and um, portfolio was launched. Um, but around that time, I mean, look at from 2012... Well, it never ends, but certainly from 2012 through 2018, 2019, there was intense focus and scrutiny on the private equity industry as well. You know, the, 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 I, I remember many, and I, when I say many, I can't underscore the word many enough time, how much pushback and challenges, you know, we received as then me, part of a PE team, you know, from our boards about private equity. Same thing. Lack of transparency, high fees, you know, and and complaints about um, returns, particularly for for our portfolio. So, PE has had the same challenges as hedge funds. I would say one major difference with PE overall, for most plans at least, certainly for New York City, is that PE is among the highest returning asset classes. Period. Right. So when you look 
at that fact and particularly put that in the context of a low interest rate environment, you know, where we have to make, at least New York City does, has to make 7%, you know, that's our target actual area rate of return. It's hard to do that with how, without a high octane returning investment, um, you know, asset class like private equity. So I think uh, from that perspective, it's hard to ignore private equity. And that's why you've seen, you know, not only so much attention, but more importantly, capital from public plans, you know, flooding into not only, you know, the private asset classes and private equity in particular. That being said, I also have to say that the industry has improved. You know, I think certainly from many LPs like New York City, also in partnership with organizations like ILPA that I give a lot of credit to, we have definitely seen great strides in improving transparency in PE. I remember things back circa 2012 that I would never have access to that today I do. Um, and that is certainly LPs like New York City and other even larger LPs together pushing for that. But I think the industry has moved in that way, it has been forced to move in that way. Um, and ILPA has been a great partner um, to, to LPs in, in, in helping achieve that. I think the other um, point that has helped, frankly, has been the growth and explosion of co-investments. And why do I mention that is because that really has been a tool, Betty, for, for organizations and investment and allocators like New York City to buy down our fees, right? So we have been very focused on co-investments. And for us, you know, we, we, we evolved in, in our, in our co-investment strategy. So early on and still to, through today, we primarily have done what we called co-investment sidecars or structured co-investment vehicles alongside some of our primary relationships. So they're contractual vehicles in no fee, no carry, you know, co-investments alongside primary funds in private equity. We continue to do that. Um, and that has been a very successful program. And as of this year, um, our boards approved now a formal co-investment platform. So now we have the ability to make, um, you know, ad hoc co-investments not tied necessarily to a fund or through a structured vehicle, um, you know, um, with some of our primary relationships. That's critical because ultimately, you know, the bottom line, no matter how you slice it, is that it buys down our overall fees um, in, in the portfolio. Um, and, we, and we look over time for co-investments to be a meaningful part of our portfolio. Great. And what about valuations? Where do so you valuations see those are going? interesting because absolutely COVID, um, you know, has wrecked havoc on the portfolio, particularly those sectors, uh, Betty, that have been most kind of COVID impacted, you know, think travel, think leisure, think retail, you know, all the ones we all know. And of course, energy, you know, have, have been severely impacted by COVID. Um, that being said, what's interesting about our PE portfolio is that the impact um, has been less severe than the public markets. And that's both on the way down than on the way up. Certainly, we know the dynamics of the PE industry and the mark to markets and, and portfolio marks. But to give you an example of what I mean, if you look at U.S. market performance in Q1, we were down about 21%. U.S. market performance in Q2, we were up 22, 23%. But if you look at our portfolio, the New York City Pension Fund's private equity portfolio, in Q1, we were down about nine and a half percent, 
right? Versus the market being down 21. And in Q2, we were up 9.8%, almost 10% in Q2, right? So certainly less volatile um, than the markets, both on the way up on and, and then on the way down. And overall, something that I would not have expected to say if you had if we had this interview in April of this year is that you know the portfolio has been resili- resilient. Um, and to the point where, you know, we believe we will end the year, you know, we still don't know yet because, you know, that PE marks are lagged, um, but we believe we're going to end 2020 with a portfolio that's cash flow positive. Um, in a year where we thought we would have a deluge of capital calls, very few distributions, potentially have a, now a portfolio that went cash flow negative, which then creates other liquidity concerns for us. And we didn't have that. So we had resilience um, in, 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 in our portfolio. So overall, you know, we, we've done well. Um, what I will say, though, is that absolutely valuations continue to be very high. You know, so there are certainly concerns there. And there are certain pockets and segment of private equity that have been net beneficiaries, frankly, from the trend of work from home, play from home, do everything from home, you know, um, that have led to continuing, you know, rise in valuation. So as we know, IT, anything tech and IT, anything healthcare are certainly two segments that jump up as being incredibly richly valued and valued for, for perfection. And so far, it's working, but there's certainly concern there. But frankly, Betty, we've had this concern for like three or four years. You know, we've been saying we're a late cycle. We have high valuations. Um, what's interesting is that the underlying public markets, you know, continue to run. They obviously took a big pause and crash at the beginning of this year, but now we're back up to all time highs. You know, so, so those, um, those dynamics we were very thoughtful about. Um, and are concerned about. So it makes us certainly much more thoughtful as to where we're deploying capital. Um, I think that won't surprise you to hear that, you know, we're, we're, we're being much more scrutinizing where we're deploying capital and trying to pick our spots because there absolutely is a concern uh, of high valuations and potential impact on compressing um, returns in private equity going forward. I read in the Wall Street Journal about CalPERS wanting to increase their exposure to private equity. (laughs) They're in the same way that we are. You know, they they have a bogey to hit um, and it's hard to do it. You know, we believe in diversification. So a part of our, um, you know, plan, um, you know, and, and funds, Betty, are in fixed income assets. And they're not returning anything, <laughs> you know, right. and, and, and every time we, and I'll speak for, again for New York City, that every time we undershoot our 7% target, it means that the city, New York City, has to contribute more to the pension plans. And in a year like 2020, with the pandemic, with the budget shortfalls and gaps that we have, you know, that that's tough, right? So I am yeah. incredibly mindful of that. So what does that do? That leads you towards risk assets, you know, where, where you can, and we have some limitations, and it creates some of the big conversations we've had over the last year or two with our boards, because also we think for the reasons that we've mentioned of rich valuations and, you know, a, a bull market of almost 10, 11 years, you know, that ended at the beginning of this year, we also thought that we needed to de-risk the portfolio, right? Because valuations were getting so rich. So how do you de-risk 
you know, and still deal with, with, you know, fixed income yielding zero, basically, and having to hit 7%. I tell you, that's a puzzle that sometimes is hard to solve. That is a tough challenge. Diving into diversity, equity, and inclusion, in your recent New York City pension funds emerging an MWBE conference, you highlighted New York City is launching a comprehensive DEI assessment of investment managers across your portfolio so that you can measure and track over time manager performance on various DEI metrics. I'm curious, what would New York City pension funds do if, for example, it does not see any improvement in DEI metrics in, say, a BlackRock, which is one of your partners that manages your diverse manager programs over time, such as in five years from the launch of your assessment? I think overall, the ultimate goal um, that we have with this with, with this initiative, Betty, is to is to hold our investment managers accountable. You know, right now we do extensive due diligence in the area of of diversity and inclusion. You know, we have you know long lists of questions that our teams ask, and also data requests. I mean, we go fairly deep in the, the types of information that we ask. You know, and it's not just demographic information. One of the things that I think we're at least one of the first to do it. And it was, frankly, a challenge, um, but important for us was to also have these firms give us compensation-weighted data, you know, as we were one of the first to require that, that, yes, I'd like to know the demographics of your senior people and your investment team and your overall firm, but you know what? I want you to compensation-weight that data, right? Because at the end of the day, we know that we are in the investment business and it's about money. <laughs> and usually those that make the most money are the ones who are making decisions. That's just kind of how it works in our industry. And that's been powerful. I think that's been helpful. Now, frankly, what we haven't had the ability to do, and it's more of our own internal systems don't allow us, is to track this information, right? So we receive it, it gets digested during an underwriting, it gets presented to our boards as part of our investment package, because it does go into our write-ups. But then this information kind of lives in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere, you know, or, you know, or it's just a common, uh, a compilation, sorry, of many Excel spreadsheets. So we wanted to find a tool, um, you know, that will likely go outside through a third party to help us to be able to not only standardize all the questions and data requests that we have, but then be able to have it all in one place and be able to not only compare and contrast, across managers, but for individual managers track their progress. Because what ends up happening, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, every single one of our managers has to present in front of our boards before they receive an allocation. And one of the questions they always get is a question around, you know, DE&I. Um, and many of these, particularly our, our, our um, re-up managers and long-term relationships, are giving us progress reports about what they're doing in this area. And we want to be able to track it because ultimately, uh, to answer your question, we want to have this information um, and so that it allows our boards to use it to make investment decisions. So that that is the ultimate goal of that. Thank you. So let's say that you have a system, you're tracking progress, I'm really curious because it's really easy to ask the information, receive the information, and you, you said digest it, uh, maybe for that meeting or for that investment decision you're making. But once they're your manager tracking their progress on DEI, what if you don't see any changes 
over, say, five years? And that's exactly there be any it. Consequence? I, 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 there should, should be. So that's, that's that's what we're saying. We absolutely believe that there should be consequences. And as we know, you know, you know, this decision, you know, to invest in a manager, you know, there are many inputs into this decision. But what we want to make sure is that DNI is also an input into decision making, right? So we want to be able to then have a conversation and say, XYZ manager, you know, you told us that your plan was to do X and you had a goal to get to this by Y. You know, not only have you not reached that goal, you've made no progress since day one. Why is that? And I want to begin with the conversation because we want to have the opportunity, give the opportunity to any manager to explain why. But if the answer is clearly that there's not a lot of true support and it was more window dressing, then I think that should absolutely impact the investment decisions that we make. So, so to, that's the bottom line reason for it. We want it to be another input in how we not only um, review and recommend managers, but ultimately how our boards make decisions. And now it's time for our CIO to CIO question. This is from Scott Pittman. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Mount Sinai Health System. He says the following, travel is a great way to gain new perspectives. If you could live anywhere in the world for a month, where would you go? If you could transport you and your investment team anywhere for a month for an in-depth research, where would it be? So for me, I. It's, it's Asia, uh, Betty. I, I, I think personally and professionally, it's a part of the world where I have spent, you know, little time. You know, I, I, I've been lucky enough um, to go to China, but I've been there once. You know, I've been to Australia, I've been there once. You know, um, I've been to Japan, but I've been there once. You know, so again, I think it's a part of the world that's important where I have personally not spent a lot of time and I would like to have first-hand experiences. Um, so, so to me, without a doubt, it'd be Asia and probably be China, um, a place that I would like to immerse myself a little bit and get to know if I had the ability to snap my fingers and be somewhere for a month <laughs> or two. Um, that's absolutely where I would pick to go. Nice. TRS, Teacher Retirement System of Texas, is considering opening an office in Singapore. They already have a, an office in London. Is that something maybe New York City pension funds could do one day? You know what? I never say never. Um, so it absolutely is something that down the future could happen. But frankly, I, I think it'd be tough for us to, it's tough for me to envision that happening, you know, in, in the near term. There's just a lot of complexities around our organization, our boards, our structure, let alone the cost would be, I think, prohibitive at this point. So I think that would be way down the road. Yeah. One of the ways they were able to justify it, I forget the percentage of their portfolio is invested in Europe and X percent invested in Asia. And now moving on to personal questions. What is a book you would recommend to our listeners? So uh, this one I thought of because I there's, there's one that I would classify a little bit in the self-help category, um, Betty, that's called Essentialism. And um, may have heard of it, but it's one that was given to me by a friend um, last year um, that I got to this year. And essentially, it, it's taught me in reading it, particularly though in this time of working from home and COVID and trying to deal with so many different things, that that life is not about doing more in less time. You know, I always felt that I needed to 
cram more into my day. You know, my responsibilities were growing. There were a lot of things that I, I needed to get done. And I was cramming more and more into what I was trying to um, accomplish. And what what I've learned, um, and it's been important for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm practicing, practicing it, so it's a work in progress, it's that it's more about focusing on what's essential. And that's the definition of the book, Essentialism. And then when you focus on what's essentialism, then you give your best to that. And to me, that has been eye-opening in ways that I didn't foresee, you know, reading it. Because sometimes, or at least for me, I, I, I will say, Betty, that the more you achieve, the more you want to achieve. And the more things that you add to your list of future goals, accomplishments that you want to, or future goals that and targets that, that, that you want to achieve. And it becomes a vicious cycle. You know, it becomes a vicious cycle where you try to accomplish um, more and more. But what, but this has taught me, and I'm really working hard to put it into practice, is that, you know, the, the more you try to cram in, and, and there's a term that, that he uses in the book, which I just found, it was a little bit of a light bulb moment as I was reading it. I kind of reread that passage so many times, is that it, it leads you, that kind of vicious cycle that I was in personally leads you into what he calls the undisciplined pursuit of more. And the undisciplined pursuit of more frustrates your ability to have future successes. And that just was kind of one of those moments where it kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I reread that chapter a few times and I'm like, wow, that makes sense. So anyway, I recommend that one because that was a little eye-opening for me. And literally I have chapters highlighted that I go back in little passages that I read when I need to remind myself and feel a little overwhelmed. And it helps me focus, I guess, ultimately. That does sound quite interesting. I'll have to check it out. What money advice would you give to younger generations? You know, I like this question because I, I get asked this often. You know, it, it's a funny thing. Won't surprise you, Betty. Many of my friends and family think I'm, a, um, I'm in wealth management because I always get asked, you know, <laughs> what should I invest in? I'm like, not exactly what I do. Um, but yes, um, I can certainly give you general advice. But all jokes aside, what I, what I always say to anyone who asks the question is that it's never too early to start saving and planning for the future. You know, I, I am, I am one of those, you know, I'm a planner. Um, and it's worked out, you know, well for my life. You know, one of the things that I'm lucky, I feel lucky in retrospect that I did is that, you know, with my first job, you know, at Merrill, um, but my first job, we all get introduced to the workplace. We have the ability to get different benefits and it happens. You know, as you know, and you speak to HR professionals, that most young professionals don't take advantage, a full advantage of their benefits, right? I'm young, I'm healthy, I maybe don't need full health insurance, I don't need this life insurance that this company is offering me, why should I pay 15, 30 bucks a month for life insurance, you know, when I'm 22 years old, you know, why should I max out my contribution to 401ks, etc.? And I'm like, uh-uh, that is the first thing that you need to do, you know, you need to... A, be thinking of your, of your retirement and your future from the first day you walk into your first job. So that's one of the basic things that I advise folks is that resist, um, that thought that you're young and you don't need to think about those things yet. The other thing that I mentioned, which is personally important to me, because I learned this the hard way as a young person, is that, um, I am very much conscious of what I spend. 
So to me, I'm Betty outside of my primary residence, meaning my home or my car. I literally do not like debt. I literally, my golden rule is that if I cannot afford to pay for it in cash, I don't buy it. I don't put it on my card. I don't have revolving debt. I couldn't tell you the last time that I carried a balance on my card, you know, over a month. You know, it, it all gets paid every month. And frankly, you know, to those young listeners, I tell them I learned the hard way. You know, as one of those kids who went to college, got 37 credit cards, spent way too much, um, and got myself in financial trouble. And I learned from that. Done. And ever since then, because I tell you, credit, you should guard jealously. Jealously. You know, ever since then, I have literally never carried a balance over, you know, revolving credit over a month, uh, more than a month in my life. <laughs> What's your favorite story or moment of experiencing cultural diversity? You know what? I have a funny story. So when I was a junior in college, I had the opportunity to travel abroad um, as part of my senior thesis work. I did a summer, um, actually a spring semester, stayed there for the summer, but I did a spring semester at uh, in Sweden. Um, it's my first trip to Europe. And I will tell you that I met Betty so many people. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating. I met so many people um, during that trip who told me early on that they have never touched, I, I kid you not, touched a person of color in their life. And I couldn't wow. believe that. And this was 1992, to give your um, listeners context. And that just blew me away, you know, coming from Jersey City and New York City. And it was an experience, you know, wow. um, but also a very positive one. I had a great time there. Um, the people were fantastic. It came, the questions came out of curiosity and not a bad place. So I, I want to make sure I, I say that because that's just the truth. But it was a shock. I mean, it was it was a, a culture shock for me, and and that was a very interesting experience for me. Indeed. Lastly, what is the best advice you've ever received, or advice that you would impart to others? The best advice I've ever received is from my mother. I mean, there it, nothing comes close. She she has a saying, and it's in Spanish, but she has a saying, Betty, that. And it was to all three of us, meaning my, my two brothers um, and I, to always be ready when opportunity knocks. You know, it was something that she just drilled on us from early on. You know, she was one of those helicopter parents before there were helicopter parents, you know, in the 70s and 80s. You know, we, we, we had, for better or for worse, but ultimately for better, you know, we lived across the street from our grammar school. You know, uh, so my mom was in school literally all the time. She was the PTA president. You know, she was the kind of mom, Betty, who chose our seats, you know, at the beginning of every calendar year for every class. You know, I mean, she was all over it, um, but in a good way. Um, you know, I owe so much to her, but she would tell us always be ready when opportunity knocks. And it's guided me in my life. You know, it's guided me in so many decisions. It's guided me in how I prepare myself. It's guided me in how I think about um, what I want to do. It's guided me in how I approach work, you know, because I'm always thinking about what's next and how to, you know, what do I need to do to get to X or Y in terms of setting milestones and targets for myself. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to almost the beginning when, when I got that call and it was literally a call, a lunch, um, at Merrill Lynch 
you know, from um, one of the heads of investment banking who said, we're opening a, a, an, an office in Mexico City. Are you interested? I'm like, I'm ready. <laughs> you know, I mean, literally, it, and it's one of those things where you, you look at discrete little, little, little um, events in your life that you can totally tie to that. So absolutely the best advice I've ever received um, and gladly give it to everyone else. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time today, Alex. It's truly been an honor. And I really appreciate all your support of Accelerate Investors, including in our upcoming CIO Council in 2021. So thank you so much for your time and your support. Well, thank you, Betty. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. And thank you for making it fun. I, I really enjoyed myself with you this morning. Likewise, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.